0: you. Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. Happy to be here. And uh, we're going to get right into it. I'm going to do a little intro for my guest and then I will bring her on. I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. We got some really good stuff to talk about here. I am welcoming this week, Dr. Laura Anderson. And she is, I'm going to read from my little notes here. She is a licensed marriage and family uh, psychotherapist. She is also the founder for the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, and the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute, which should give you some idea of what we're going to be talking about today. Now, she has just recently put a book out called When Religion Hurts You. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about that book in this show, but I wanted to lead with a quote from somebody you all might know, Sarah Edmondson from the vow, the Nexium survivor who has her own podcast, a little bit culty has said this about this new book, quote, a brilliant blend of anecdotal and academic. This book offers a compassionate roadmap for those recovering from religious trauma Dr. Anderson offers guidance on how to put lives back together and provides a thorough resource for mental health professionals to help them counsel others in the process. Poignant and personal, this book is a must-have for anyone in the muddy aftermath of their exit from high control or extreme religious groups. End quote. So, Uh, Dr. Anderson, Laura, thank you for being on my show here. Welcome to it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's truly a delight to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you.
0: Uh. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. I think this will be fun. Uh, I you know, we we've really just met, but uh, your work mm-hmm. and everything you're doing, it's as I was mentioned before, uh, you know, it's nice to find fellow travelers on this road of recovery and trying to help people along the way with Mm -hmm. this religious trauma is a, is a very real thing. How did you, uh, just to kind of intro you, how'd you get into this field and what, you know, what's your, what's your practice, uh, with all of this?
1: Yeah, well, I actually became a therapist before working specifically with religious trauma. Mm-hmm. I live in the South, right in the heart of the buckle of the Bible belt. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's very common when you meet somebody, you they say, what's your name? And what church do you go to? As if it's just all one in the same, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I, at the time when I moved to Nashville, almost a decade and a half ago, I was still involved in church on some level. Um, but I was going through my own, what we call like deconstruction, untangling process of what do I really believe this? You know, these sorts of things. And I would just have clients trickle in, you know, um, Saying, hey, these things have happened to me. And um, I-, I don't know if it's spiritual abuse. I don't know if it's just me. I don't know. Are these beliefs even bad? In the thick as they were, you know, coming in, I was going through it myself as well. You know, I grew up in a high control religion. Mm. Um, my father was a director at a fundamentalist Christian camp. We lived on site all year round. Um, I have my Bible degree. I worked formally at a church. I did all the things. I was eat, breathe, sleep, what my denomination and religion was. It was my entire identity. And um, really didn't have space to ask questions until i was you know well into my adult years and so as i was asking questions i started encountering other people that were asking questions except they were just sitting in my office uh we didn't have social media and podcasts the way that we do now um and so it was kind of like hush hush right you're not you're, you're not really talking about it in in conversation because you're wondering, is it only me? And really, truly, the further I got into my own work, did my own healing, I started to see it more with my clients. And really, when the 2016 election happened is when I think we started to see publicly what I would say like a mass exodus coming out of many high-control religions um, with people that were just incredibly disillusioned, what just happened here? Um it, this feels very opposite of what I've been taught. And they're starting to ask questions, but not only asking questions, they were starting to realize their bodies were having physiological responses. There was things that were happening there where they could maybe reject a belief, but things were still happening inside them. And there was everything from various mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, OCD, lots of hypervigilance, all the way to trauma, PTSD, CPTSD. And so yeah, I just, I I jumped in at that point. I was at my own place in my personal life and professional life where I had some knowledge. I had gained some trainings. I had gone through enough on my own and just really became a passion project. And now I guess my livelihood. So <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah. I yeah. Uh, of course understand having, you know, been raised mm-hmm. in, a, in a high control group myself, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the pressures and the traumas, but something you're speaking to that we don't really mention maybe often enough are the physical reactions. Yes. You know, yeah, we talk absolutely. about the sort of psychic pain of it and the trauma mm-hmm. of it and how we don't feel good, but how that manifests is so often in physical yeah. feelings um mm-hmm. that you can't really explain. You know, there's yeah. it's it's these triggers, I guess, right? And yeah. yeah. And, and that can that those all by themselves can kind of serve as warning signs to us that something's amiss or something's wrong. Mm -hmm. But I think learning to listen to them is one of the hardest problems or difficulties we might have. What do you think about that?
1: I would agree with that because I think it, I think oftentimes, um, so we say, okay, here's this set of beliefs that I was given Mm -hmm. and I'm going to cognitively untangle those. Mm -hmm. And then Find a new identity and and believe new things and engage in new practices. And that's well and good. But I think what happens for most people is they go, okay, I have this new belief, but then I go and do X, Y, Z thing. And there's this physiological response that's happening in my body. Maybe it's disgust or panic or... I'm just feeling really activated right now. And I don't know what is going on because I don't even believe that thing. And so we start to then also feel a deep sense of shame and confusion because what's happening in our body isn't matching our external kind of world and the thoughts that we've adopted. And so, especially for those of us who have grown up in these high control groups or religions, or even been in them for an extended amount of time, We have to look at not only how did those messages live in our head, we have to look at how did they live in our bodies, right? We have to connect the mind and body together because they just simply can't be separate. And when we can understand that, that our brain creates neural pathways that send signals down to our body, and and we have these automatic subconscious responses, when we can understand that, we can start to understand some of the ways that, oh, you know, I yeah, I, I I believe... For instance, sex before marriage is fine. My body is physiologically responding in a different way. And that's why, because just because I believe something different doesn't mean my body has caught up to that. But that's where we do start to see some of the mental health disorder, dis ease, um, confusion, and, and things that we're now going, wow, we like religious trauma is trauma, right? And just like trauma from anything else. Um, and so I think, yeah, it is important to understand this mind body connection.
0: Absolutely. It's, it kind of harkens back to that um, the body keeps the score thing yeah. Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. yeah, I, I really, really appreciate Bessel van der Kolk's work. It was so groundbreaking uh he because he recognized like, hey, this this therapy that we're doing, you know, just like gradually exposing people to this threat, it's not really doing anything. and he re- he and others like him, Judith Herman, Peter Levine, Stephen Porges, all these wonderful scientists and researchers started to recognize that, oh, trauma is not in our head, it's in our bodies. Right. And when that shifted, it shifted the way that we viewed the human experiences, the nervous system, and ultimately treatment, therapy, uh, resolving how that lives in our bodies and recovering from it.
0: Yeah. Big time. I yeah. cannot tell you the number of times I, exactly what you described during the last 10 years of, of, you know, hashing through all the Scientology nonsense yes. uh, that my mind was saying one thing and my body was going, yeah, okay, buddy, but whatever. That's good for you for thinking that, but no, we're yeah. not, Yeah, you know, we're not done no. with this yet. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think religion is such where it's so powerful. It really hits us on every level. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and because we have this higher power figure that's all knowing or watches over us or, you know, kind of sees everything and is ready to smite us, it adds this other level of fear and panic that we might not even be consciously aware of. But again, that doesn't just go away simply because we decided to not go to church or a meeting or be done with it altogether. It still lives in us for a long time unless or until we we actually deal with it.
0: Yeah, big time. A lot of people think about trauma and they think medical situations, they Mm -hmm. hear this word often in medical contexts on TV, you know, ER, et cetera. Um, Or they think about it in a military context uh, with either PTSD from soldiers or combat situations or, you know, Mm -hmm. shelling and explosions and all that. And obviously there's a lot of good reasons to, um, to, you know, see there's a lot of trauma there. However, Mm -hmm. we then tend to devalue or not give acknowledgement to the trauma that can occur in Everyday life, quote unquote, doing the air quote thing again, right? Uh, That, but and yet, there it is. Uh, Growing up in a high control family, a high control group, meaning a situation where demands are being made on you that are unreasonable and are actually damaging to you, either emotionally or physically or or sexually or all the above. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you talk about or address? you know or even break the barrier of hey there's something here maybe we should be looking at when it comes to mm-hmm. talking to, to your patients or talking to people about religious trauma because a lot of people are going to hear that and go that's nonsense there is nothing yeah. traumatic about religion so how yeah. do we connect those dots for people
1: Yeah I I can really appreciate that question and people who doubt that you know I think mm-hmm a couple things like colloquially we've we have exactly as you've said understood trauma as this big catastrophic event and it certainly can be however trauma is not the th- thing or things that happen to us. It's the way that our nervous system responds to those things that happen to us. It is the things that are too much, too fast, too soon that overwhelm our ability to cope and come back to a place of felt sense safety, internal safety. And so essentially that means trauma is highly subjective. It, what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and vice versa. I don't believe that there is anything that is inherently traumatic. So because we we see that we've got one soldier who goes off to war and experiences things like PTSD. And we have other soldiers who go off to war and come back and are, are very well adjusted mm. or may have, you know, depression or anxiety, but not trauma, right? And so we have to leave the door open then for a bigger meaning, which is when you mentioned Bessel van der Kolk, that's where he started to go. And I think it's important to understand that because that does open the door to consider that really anything could be traumatic based on a variety of factors that are often inside us that are beyond our control, our genetics, our DNA, our history, our environment, our access to safety, things like that. Um, And so when we, we add on the religious piece, I am very careful to say, I don't believe that religion causes trauma inherently again. Mm-hmm. Right. But when we're a part of these religions that are so controlling and so demanding and there is not the ability to escape them especially for those of us who grew up in them you know we are looking at you know a potential trauma diagnosis because there was too much too soon too fast um and so i don't want to pathologize religion uh certainly but i do think it is it would be a disservice to people to just look at religion how most people tend to as a supportive pro-social factor that we can gain identity, support, hope, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Certainly it can be for some. And if that is your story, great. Um I I I don't I don't ever try to like change anybody's mind on that. I I just I work with whoever's in front of me. Um but I think when we look at really what is trauma, we have to consider a lot of different things. And I really consider religion to be under kind of the umbrella of complex trauma, which is where a lot of like developmental trauma is happening. So there may not be one or two really large events, right? Where we can point back and we say there, this is it's this moment, this happened. When we're looking at complex or developmental trauma, we're usually looking at smaller, maybe like you said, kind of day-to-day things happening Over time, consistently, persistently, and they're inescapable, right? So you think about the kid. I mean, I learned about hell. That's one of the first beliefs I ever learned about. And I was what? two, three years old, uh-huh. where, you know, I, I can't fight back against that. I can't run away. I can't say no to my parents. I just have to take that in. And not only am I taking that in, it's coming from my caregivers who are supposed to be safe and loving. And they're telling me about this awful thing. So they're both instilling fear and the source of love. And it, a little child's brain doesn't know how to organize that. In fact, most big child's brains don't know how to organize that either. Right?
0: Exactly. So we
1: look at some of that and to go, okay, could it be that though there's not these huge instances, maybe clergy sexual abuse, maybe really um, kind of overwhelming altar calls or having to evangelize, maybe we all have that, maybe some of us have those. But when we look at these kind of day-to-day things over time, that's where we start to see this There wasn't, there wasn't a before or an after there was, this is just how it always was. And that's where we start to look at a more complex or developmental trauma.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, as we say, complex PTSD, C-PTSD, versus your yeah. one incident PTSD sort of modeling. I think is how it's yeah. sort of looked at, and it's and it's a great point you're making because a lot of people will focus on one or two memories that they have. Uh, at least it's been my experience uh, in, yeah. in in myself and dealing with other people that they'll go, Oh, well, what was this? And it was when I was four years old. My dad, you know, blah blah blah. Or yeah. when I was ten, or when I was twenty, or whenever it was, and they really fixate on that as a source and can, I think, sometimes maybe uh, miss the forest for the trees a little bit because there are earlier life moments that are, mm-hmm. you know, as you've mentioned, developmental, uh, trauma that we forget mm-hmm. about. We don't even, it's, it's just so part of who and what we think of as ourselves that mm-hmm. we don't see it for it, or we don't have a memory of it. And so it's kind of lost in time for us. Mm-hmm. Does this, does what I'm saying come up in therapy that you've given, or is this, is this part of what's accounted for mm-hmm. in the process?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of people I've come in contact with there where they'll say, "Oh, I don't have religious trauma because such and such thing didn't happen to me," right? right? That that single incident. So I think a lot of times I do a lot of education with people to exactly what you were saying so I can go like, "Hey, when we hear trauma colloquially, we're thinking the car accident, the war, that incident, right? Mm-hmm. And that can be traumatic. Absolutely. It can, it can absolutely result in trauma. But that is what you said, single incident or what make, we might call a shock trauma. And what is so key about that is it's a single incident, right? So there's a before and then the thing happens and then there's after,
0: Yeah.
1: right? And so oftentimes when I'm working with clients where there are more of those single incident traumas, it's actually easier to work through those because they are more isolated incidents as we go, okay, we can process through this thing right here and then we can move on with relative ease as we kind of integrate that into life and and we're good. When we look at the complex trauma piece or CPTSD, we don't usually have a before and after. Um, Sometimes we do. Um, Oftentimes domestic violence, for instance, that Mm. might result in CPTSD and Mm. say perhaps you don't get into that relationship until you are an adult. The reason it might fall into that category is not because it it, it has a before or it doesn't have a before and after, but we look at how long it is. And so you're immersed in it, that inescapable factor. And so I think when we're looking at complex trauma, we're looking at a variety of factors. So again, even though there might not be these incidences that happen, it's inescapable, right? Like it, I don't have anywhere where I can go and get help. In many cases, the perpetrator is also a person who's supposed to be keeping us safe or comfort or nurturing, um, or has some sort of a more intense connection to us rather than just like the passerby person. We're looking at things that are happening consistently where this is just like, this is my life. I'm always in that state of fear or hypervigilance or walking on eggshells. And so it's those things that we develop and we have to adapt to. And for the complex trauma survivor, they would go, wait, is... Is that weird? Like, is that not normal? Right. Like, that's their baseline of normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of the work then we're doing out of that is not to process every single specific moment because that's just impossible. (laughs) And there's so many that we wouldn't even remember. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's going, hey, how do we? work to develop a felt sense of safety so that as I'm going through the world and I'm triggered or I'm seeing things that are, you know, reminiscent of the past or whatever it is, I can develop new skills or I can access new skills that help me feel safe as I navigate through the world um, so that I'm not constantly in in a place of fear or hypervigilance or um, anxiety, you know, isolation, anything like that.
0: Right, right. All makes sense there for sure. I'm wondering about, um, I'm wondering how you think about as a therapist and how you bring your clients to think about recovery from trauma And, Mm -hmm. and let me, let me present like, as a, as a, I guess, a counter to this, uh, Dianetics, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I come up with Dianetics and the idea of my entire life was trauma exists. Absolutely. It exists. Mm -hmm. They don't even use that word so much as other, you know, colloquialisms in Scientology, but trauma right? Pain, suffering, unconsciousness, whatever. And Hubbard posited that there are these moments of trauma that happen to people and they happen all the time. And these moments Mm -hmm. uh, contain charge that you can go back and sort of siphon out or, 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 or take away from those memories. And by doing that, by removing that sort of negative energy you are removing the traumatic effects of those memories. Now, that's a really wonderful theory. That is a theory that has so much appeal to people. Even if, you know, and when they kind of come to understand the sales pitch of it, they go, well, shit, that sounds great. Uh, If you could do that for me, right? Like, wow. Uh, But... (laughs) I've <laughs> come to learn over the years mm-hmm. that's not exactly how the mind is put together. And that's not mm-hmm. exactly how our memories work. In fact, they don't work mm. anything like that. Uh, mm. And this is all 1950s hokum from Hubbard, right? But mm. how do we talk about releasing or letting go of, mm. or getting rid of trauma? How, mm-hmm. what, what does that look like in a modern context mm-hmm. in therapy?
1: Yeah. So you might get different answers depending on who you talk to and kind of their modality, how they focus on trauma. I said mm-hmm. earlier, trauma is not in the head, it's in the body. Yeah. I'm a body based practitioner. So my certifications in trauma come from spending many years and many dollars, you know, getting certified to process trauma through the body. There are a couple elements of Ron Hubbard's work that are accurate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like anything in life, right? There's, there's parts of a lot of things that are accurate, but sometimes not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, this idea of, um, okay, so we'll go like this. Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, we're all animals, right? We're, you know, we're just a little bit more developed than like my little dog who's sitting right here, (laughs) but she's a great, great lesson for me. Dogs don't have their prefrontal cortex, Fully developed like a human does. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when a a real or perceived or remembered threat enters our sphere, our nervous system, which is designed to keep us surviving, Mm -hmm. goes on high alert, right? and goes, okay, there's danger. And it, it kind of um, activates our the limb, or sorry, the reptilian part of our brain. And mm-hmm. that also activates the limbic part of our brain, which says, okay, so what do we do with that threat, right? And that's where we start to get things like fight or flight or freeze or fawn. And we reactions that may not cognitively make sense, but we're just like in the moment, right? And we're going, right? So that, those parts of our brains can rationalize any behavior even if it's not rational now humans we have this more front frontal part of our brain that's developed called the prefrontal cortex and that's going to be where our thoughts and habits and cognitions and patterns and sequences and logic lives and we think we live out of there pretty much all all day every day not really true but you know we can we can kid (laughs) ourselves a little bit um but that part of our brain, when something overwhelming comes in, that part of our brain kind of goes offline. So we're really acting from these more primitive parts of our brain. Yeah. And so what happens is that when our nervous system finally goes, oh, actually, we're okay, um, it, it kind of is able to settle a little bit. So when when there's threat, we you even notice if i don't know if you're doing video for this but like mm-hmm. there's kind of this bracing right mm-hmm. and, and our body mobilizes internally and this is all very subconscious so beneath our conscious so different chemicals are coming together to suppress certain functions like needing to eat or use the restroom because that would be really inconvenient if you're trying to run away from a tiger right and then it mobilizes other energy so we can fight or flight or well flee sorry not flight um And so when our bodies go, okay, I've gotten away from the danger, the the threat is mitigated. All of that stuff that's been mobilized needs a place to go. In trauma world, we call it completing the trauma cycle. So it might Mm -hmm. just look like, oh, you kind of shake that out, right? Or maybe it's crying or yelling or whatever it is. We see animals do this all the time. If you watch like the National Geographic channel, you see a gazelle who's being chased by a lion and all of a sudden they fall over and they look like they're dead and their breathing becomes really shallow. And, and what they're doing is they're trying to protect their survival. They want to stay alive. And the lion will kind of sniff around. They don't want already dead prey. And so they they walk away. And then if you keep watching, the gazelle will spring up, kind of shake a little bit and then hop away, right? And animals do that because that part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex has not yet developed. And they just know, hey, I've got all this extra stuff in my body. I got to get it out. And, and we go. But as humans, what we do is we go, Oh, it's over. Oh, it it wasn't that bad. I was just seeing things. I was making too big of a deal. That prefrontal cortex comes back online and tries to make meaning out of what happened, but it doesn't actually take away the energy that's coursing through our bodies. So if we don't have a way to release that, that's where it can start to kind of live in us. And I don't mean in like a woo woo way, but adrenaline, cortisol, where it lives inside of us that really can have over time these detrimental effects where we start to see things like chronic pain, autoimmune disorders, depression, anxiety, and yes, trauma. So when we're looking at how do we resolve that, we do have to go back into the body and release that energy that is already there. So Ron Hubbard's using words that are familiar to me, um, but it's not... um. It's usually not done through words. It's usually done through our body and it can and I'm not talking like the big cathartic, you know, waving your arms around. oftentimes it's just subtle shifts that our body's needing to kind of just complete that, get that energy out. And once it's out, It's not there anymore. Um, Now, that doesn't mean you don't remember it. It doesn't mean you might not get triggered by it, but it doesn't have the same maybe intensity as it did before. So we have to look at it from that body-based perspective, a little bit animalistic um, and, and to say, hey, how do animals, you know, deer... Deer aren't constantly scared in the wild all the time, right? Because they're able to kind of shake that off. And so we're kind of tapping into our most primitive kind of creation here and going, that's we have the skills to do that as well. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot of information.
0: It makes sense to me. And I am, and I'm hoping okay. that it's translating to the audience well as, as well, because it's good stuff. This is exactly yeah. right. This, is, this mm-hmm. is all body-based stuff. And I, yeah. I yeah. stress these things, not because I'm trying to tell everybody out there that they're, you know, that all your spiritual beliefs are wrong. What I'm trying to mm-hmm. say is we don't need to go there in order to explain yeah. this stuff.
1: Yeah. In fact, you know. you know, where where people, so a lot of people come into therapy and they just want to talk, they got to get all the details out. And I do realize that can be very helpful. Our stories are powerful mm-hmm. and to be able to tell that or to have that witnessed and heard can be incredibly validating and healing, right? What I think most people don't understand is that We don't have to tell our stories. Our bodies are already doing that for us. Mm. So there's many times I will work with somebody where I actually have no idea what happened to them. I don't need to know what happened to them because they're able to say, I'm feeling this sense of say activation where I just want to run away. And I go, okay, let's just, We'll start there. We just go with that. Now, oftentimes they'll say, you know, at the end, they'll be like, oh, here's what this means to me, yeah. right? But that that meaning piece is just kind of one channel of like how we understand ourselves. And, and so I think that that's important too, because I think stereotypically, or you watch in entertainment, people, you know, go into their therapist's office and they sit and they talk, right? And, and a lot of people are like, why would I want to talk about some of the worst things that have ever happened to me? Yeah. And I get it, right? Why would you? Why would you want to relive that? But when we go, hey, actually, you don't have to. (laughs) Like there are ways where we can work with your body and help your body kind of resolve how that's living inside of you and that may not ever mean you have to speak that person's name or tell that story. it oftentimes can bring a little bit of peace or safety that I I get I get to choose what I want to say. I don't have to say this just because I'm in therapy and need to get it out, um, which I feel can be very empowering
0: yeah I think it's great and not and and not highlighted enough on my channel so I'm glad we're talking about this because yeah. um, because ca- classic therapy right psychotherapy especially mm-hmm. is considered talk therapy and I'm going to sit there and talk yes. and of course you have to talk to your therapist they, you do have to have yeah. interactions but yeah. what you talk about and this idea of having to do regression therapy or go back oh. and relive the thing again mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. This, there are small percentages of people that that works on. According to studies I've read, I'm, I'm sure. yep. uh, not, not everybody, not everybody by a right. long shot. And so, you know, so we don't have to do it that way in order to mm-hmm. process and relieve this stuff. And that's really good news. Mm-hmm. I'm curious also about your thoughts about this. This is something kind of out of left field on this that just occurred to me, which is because we're talking about, you know, body-based trauma and stress and feelings and and, and mm-hmm. uh, stomach flippings and, you know, nervousness and some yeah. of these feelings that come unbidden, unpredicted, and unknown where they're coming from. It is the job mm-hmm. of our frontal lobes to try to figure out reasons and yeah. rationale for that. Even false answers are better than none. Mm-hmm. It seems yeah. to be the human condition, right? I'll take any yeah. answer better than none. Right. I'm yeah. wondering to myself right now whether this might be a factor in why people are drawn to some of these groups in the first place when we're talking about cults or high control groups is they get these funny mm-hmm. feelings and mm-hmm. the groups are all too willing to tell them what those feelings mean. And then they're kind of then they're kind of trapped because if they accept yeah. that interpretation, oh, mm-hmm. you mean it's my phaeton bouncing around in and out of my head? Oh, it's yeah. oh, it's mm-hmm. this thing, right? Oh, that's that—that's proof that I have mm-hmm. a reactive mind because my stomach's doing flippy yeah. floppies right now. Mm-hmm. What what, do, yeah. what would you say about this from your experience? Yeah,
1: uh, first I agree. That's what I would say yeah. <laughs> first. Okay, cool. um, yeah, you know, I don't know how intentional this was to begin with. Mm. But I do think that high control religion and other high control groups, cults, fundamentalism, have an understanding of the human psyche and our basic needs as human thing humans things like connection yeah. feeling a sense of identity and um you know kind of being able to know how i exist and then also having like a bigger purpose than themselves right and so we look at groups like this and they that's they offer some of these very basic human needs and we are attracted to that even more so is as humans that have nervous systems We thrive on certainty. What can I expect? What is right? What is wrong, right? And so we may not like what is a yes or what is a no, But having an idea of what that is and that like a plan to follow can feel really good. It can give us at least the illusion of safety. So if I do what is right or good or healthy according to this doctrine or rules or whatever, then I'm safe. And that might mean I'm connected to the group. I'm not being cast out. I'm not being uh, fair gamed. I'm not being like any of these things. And we go, okay, this gives me a sense of worth and identity, safety and connection. On the alternative, if I do these things over here, I have a set amount of you know consequences that I can expect to receive. And so we may not like it, but we go having that sense of certainty and stability feels better than what if? (laughs) What if I don't do that? Right. So there really is some innate human pieces that religion has tapped into or high control groups have tapped into where they understand what humans need and want in order to thrive and they say we have the answer and then when you put onto it a higher power or god figure or an eternal destiny you're playing into humans fears of things like disconnection non-survival things like that and and you're really then creating um an environment where control can happen. And you can always put these caveats, you do these things or else Uh, you follow these things, you give this money or else. And so we're playing into these really big fears that humans would naturally have of really extinction, you know, of themselves um, at at the most basic kind of core level. And so, yeah, I, I do think that people can, what people are drawn to inside of a religion is also the thing that kind of eats them alive, right? They go, Yuck. I want the certainty. And then that certainty is what is then used against them and used to control them.
0: Ah, big yeah. time, big time. And I, I I, love the fact you brought up certainty because of course, in, you know, from my past, Scientology has been labeled by Hubbard as the science of certainty. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I love blowing people away with that one. Yeah, it's it's this old one, right? Yeah, Scientology is all about certainty, and it was promising that. And I wanted to get your view on this because um, I've talked about brains a lot on my channel, off and on. um, You know, had some neuroscientists on for a while, talked about the fact that the brain's primary function is prediction. That's what it's mm-hmm. basically built to, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's uh, monitoring and controlling the systems of the body and it is predicting what's coming next. Mm-hmm. And it's always operating a microsecond ahead, right? And always, yeah. yeah. Always, right? So all our perceptions, mm-hmm. our awareness of what's going on is always a little bit behind where the brain's actually processing. Yeah. Now, that all being said, and isn't that interesting, prediction becomes something really central to our life Mm -hmm. and function. And so when we are predicting properly, one could say, when everything is fully predictable, one could say, one Mm -hmm. has total certainty. Right? Sure. (laughs) Yes. I mean... Right. And and to the degree one is in an unpredictable environment or one is being shown or Mm -hmm. proven to one that they are not certain what's happening, that they're not able to predict what's coming, Mm -hmm. they're thrown off. Right. And Mm -hmm. in fact, trauma might be framed, one way of framing Mm -hmm. it is moments of vast consequential unpredictability, right? They hit us. Yes. Right? Yeah. Upside the head. And and maybe that might be a feature of why some people are traumatized by certain events and others are not, It might have mm-hmm. something to do with their going into that situation, what they expected or what they predicted yeah. would occur. That's not all yeah. of it. Obviously, there's the after effects, mm-hmm. and dealing with it could also be the reason trauma sticks. It could be because they just don't know how to deal with it or process it well. But right. I'm thinking about this forward part, this, pro- this prediction mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Having yeah. said all that, um, how do what do you think about all of that, and how that feeds into how we might develop trauma in the first place, or maybe if that's a factor, overcome it before it even starts?
1: Yeah, I've never thought of it in that way before, but I can absolutely see how that would how that could transpire. Mm. And I, as you're talking, I'm going okay. So then. What is it? Because obviously we know that life is uncertain as much as you plan and think we can predict we can't. And so much of my own personal work and how I work with clients is for the unpredictable moments. So we might use the word trigger, right? And that could be, I mean, we cannot predict triggers. Sometimes we can, we go, Oh, I'm going to be around that person. And I know they always get me so activated, (laughs) but we can't know all of these things, right? We don't know when a smell is going to come our way. And it, Brings us back, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so much of what we do is this work of internal safety and stability of in those moments. Essentially, like, how are we going to troubleshoot, right? So this thing happened, and now I'm in this unfamiliar territory because I, even though I, I'm pretty sure I'm right here in this moment in 2023, I also feel like I'm back in 1993, right? And how I didn't plan for that, and so so much of the the work that we're doing especially with folks who are in that co- under that complex trauma umbrella is what i call integration is bringing the past back to the present and saying what do i have inside me or who can i connect to that can help me feel a sense of presence and safety right now in this moment um and that comes from within us and not does not have to be dependent on the factors outside of us. Now, it can always help when we're physically safe externally that can often help us feel internally safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we it doesn't necessarily have to be that way because if we have those resources inside us to essentially roll with the punches, troubleshoot, go with the unpredictability, then It's not that things won't rattle us. It's that we don't, we bend, but we don't break, right? We think about those structures that can sway, but they don't topple over. And that's kind of what we're looking for. Um, Because we, as much as we love that certainty, if we try to do that, if we make our lives about predictability and certainty, our lives get so, so tiny, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And
1: that's, that's not living. That's not life.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that is the cult trap, by the way.
1: Yes. I mean it is.
0: In a whole different kind of approaching it from left field and in, in what we're talking about here. But really, the the small world, the bubble world that you mm-hmm. create, this this alternate reality sort of universe that we talk about, that cult members get into, that's what exactly what we're talking about is they're making their world small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. eliminate it only to the culture of this group, the cult. Right. Right. Cult Mm -hmm. culture. Cult. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. I love I love the wordplay of all of this because it really helps define Mm -hmm. and clarify what the picture is. And Mm -hmm. and that's a real shame because Mm -hmm. because there's a thing about life, which is grasping and, and owning and taking and just and just being able to deal with the fact that it is unpredictable by nature, by its, by everything yeah. about it. And mm-hmm. we're constantly fighting that with this prediction mm-hmm. thing, right? So I think it's yeah. kind of, yeah. I think these are the, the, the bottom level kind of mm-hmm. building blocks of us that explain so much of our behavior.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're hitting on something so, so poignant there because whatever the group is or the religion or whatnot, they give you that excuse of what, okay, so that's the devil trying to get me. Right. That's my ego getting in the way. That's my this or that. Yeah. And it's it's not actually helpful, <laughs> Like, but we think it is, right? Because it gives us this answer. Oh, well, if that's the devil that's causing me to sin, I have a recipe then that I can follow and that's gonna get me, back into this space of certainty or stability or in the good graces of my group or connected or whatever it might be, it does give us a sense of control, even while we're completely shaming ourselves, Um, you know? And so I I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what you're talking about here. And it just, it, um, it, it just twists our human needs in such a way that allows whoever the leaders of that group are to be the ones in control of us and, and really making our lives so tiny.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause it becomes all mm-hmm. about the cult and the cult leader and becoming that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious how else you have seen or how you might talk about how religious trauma or spiritual trauma occurs to people, mm-hmm. um, outside of, you know, uh, you know, crazy Scientology stuff. Um, You grew up in a fundamentalist group. You're familiar with that Mm -hmm. body, Mm -hmm. right? And that's way more common than the Scientology (laughs) trauma. I mean, just numbers (laughs) wise. So what Mm -hmm. sort of things are happening to people that they might not frame of or even think about as trauma-inducing or phobia-inducing, and yet Mm -hmm. there it is in this entire population of people you uh, end up giving therapy to?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because Before I ever really considered the religion I grew up in a cult or cult like, Mm -hmm. Um, it was really like (laughs) I I like went to Book of Mormon on Broadway, right? And I had always been told more like the LDS Church, they're a cult, right? And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, we believe all of the same things. (laughs) And then like I watched uh, or uh, read Leah Remini's book about her experience in Scientology, and I was like. I mean, we had some different beliefs, but like the underlying structure of it is the same. And I think that's what's so important to know is that these groups, whether they are high control groups or high control individuals, they are all coming from the same playbook. Um, they It might have a little bit of a different character flair to it, but underneath it, we're talking about dyna- dynamics of power and control. They're all coming from the same playbook. And almost, you know, we like prediction. It's almost predictive, their behaviors and how they're going to handle things. And, um, and uh, like, oftentimes I'll work with clients and I, I work with, uh, or I used to work with a lot of domestic violence clients. And I would say, mm-hmm. you know, it's likely that this person is going to do blah, blah, blah this week. And they'd come back and they're like, how did you know that that was going to happen? I was like, well, I'm not actually like a wizard. I just know <laughs> that they, have the same playbook. And so I think that's important because we can oftentimes get um, caught in the, well, this person had it worse or this person didn't have to go through this. And that all that does is it breeds shame which breeds isolation and i am not about like trauma comparing or abuse comparing or control comparing because if it happened to you and it was bad then it was bad right like it shouldn't have happened and so i always want to lead with that because i could give you a list of 55 things of here's all the things that i'm seeing but i would miss some or i would overinflate others hmm. and then that leaves the listener going well Was it that bad then? Like, cause I, I didn't, I didn't have, you know, 10 of these on the list. I only had five. Right. So I think, um, You know, a term that I use a lot is called adverse religious experiences. It's similar to like the ACEs study, adverse childhood experiences. It's a term that some other colleagues and I came up with that we're doing research around. The difference, though, it it does depart from adverse childhood experiences in that there is subjectivity to it. An adverse religious experience doesn't need a qualifier of a researcher to say, oh, that was adverse. If it was adverse it was adverse. If it impacted you, it impacted you. Now we can say that there are certain things that are more likely to impact you maybe than others. So we could look at, um, you know, different teachings around like your depravity as a human being. I knew I grew up believing I was completely depraved. I didn't even deserve the the air that I could breathe, like I didn't deserve that. I was evil from the time that I came out of my mother's womb. That's a lot right? to believe at my absolute core that I am this inherently evil person that can really have an impact on you. And it is probably there, there's maybe a greater likelihood that that would need to be processed in therapy than maybe somebody who didn't grow up believing that. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that they're how they grew up was any better or worse or it might not may may or may not have impacts but i think it's important to look at like yeah some of those beliefs when we have like eternal um like places of eternal conscious torment whether we want to call that hell or you know there's many different names for it those are often things where there's a lot of fear and hypervigilance and ocd behaviors we might call that religious scrupulosity where we go okay that's we're bringing that in and those fears have created Kind of this living reality where it's it's ve- I'm hyper vigilant all the time. Yeah. Or if we look at teachings around sex, sexuality, gender, and the rules around that, there's oftentimes people with immense amounts of shame and guilt confusion um, and and then a variety of mental health disorder, dis-ease that comes out of that. So um, I think when we look at even just some of the teachings, we can start to see then that because of the control and the restrictions and the shame that is naturally a part of those teachings, we then start to see other behaviors and lifestyles and ways of thinking and relating to others that are maybe not uh, conducive to healthy relationships or just kind of navigating in the world in a in a way that feels like it uh is in alignment with your values.
0: Yeah, I that was great. That's a great answer. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that over a laundry list. I really do because your answer is actually a, 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 a evidence of a well-informed answer, right? Which is literally <laughs> yeah. that it's relative and it, and it, exactly what you were talking about with trauma. It's like people are going to have different reactions to different stimuli, if you will, the different events. Yeah. And, and you can't, and, and, and I, and I'm a, a, a big proponent of what you were talking about there in terms of uh, let's not engage in trauma Olympics. I yeah. hate that. Yeah. I really hate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, I thought that was something valid and there was something to that. And then you come to realize after you learn about this stuff enough, you go, oh, no, it yeah. really is. Everybody's different. And if you're going to think that somebody has to go through what you had to go through, well, you know, projection isn't something that just happens in a movie theater. Right. So that's yeah. that, that's yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's a funny thing. I want to mm-hmm. ask you. um I want to ask you about something kind of different. This is a little suppositional, I think, uh, for, for you. But I wanted to find out your opinion on this since it's, it's connected somewhat with religion and religious belief. Um, maybe it's the other side of it in a way. I've noticed recently, and I've had some attention on, um, this phenomenon or this experience that some people have who are criminals, sociopaths, Psychopaths, Mm -hmm. like people who are legit, not good people, um, will have a religious experience Mm -hmm. and they will experience a personality change. Now, this does not Mm -hmm. mean that they are now no longer their former selves or that Mm -hmm. they are no longer aware of their former selves. I'm not talking about some kind of light switch Mm -hmm. phenomena but there's an interesting thing that happens there where Mm -hmm. Jesus comes into their life or something like this. I was watching an interview with a guy recently who was a diagnosed sociopath who this happened to. And he talks very frankly about it. I became Mm -hmm. a preacher. In fact, I was fascinated by this model. Right. And I, and and he's not the only one we've seen this for years, Malcolm Mm -hmm. X. I mean, we can go back to that Mm -hmm. people who literally were not good people and found religion and became good people. And this we might call the opposite of religious trauma, but I'm curious, but but maybe not. And I'm a little curious about your professional or more personal take on that. Just only Mm because I'm curious. I, you know, I, I, if, if you don't want to comment on it, I would understand.
1: No, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to think about because of course we do have the lived experiences of people where this, this is their reality, right? Yeah. I I have a family member of mine that was, you know, by like this raging alcoholic and then found Jesus and never had a drop of alcohol again and w- went to be, you know, wanted to be a missionary and all these things yeah. and lived out the rest of his life, you know, in this different way. And so I can understand that. And I, I don't know all the technical terms. I feel like I was just looking, maybe I was listening to the same interview that you were at some, but, somebody's doing some research on this like mm-hmm. recently and going like what what is this these like kind of life-altering experiences and you know so sometimes okay when things come in overwhelming right like um it can change us so I said trauma is anything that's too much too fast too soon that overwhelms our ability to cope yeah that does not just mean negative things that can be anything. Mm. And, and it doesn't have to, it doesn't always lead to trauma, something that's too much, too fast, too soon, but it can, right. It can ultimately result in that. And so I think we could go the other way too, where say you're in a service and the quote unquote, Holy spirit is moving and we're singing and we're all all these things. And we have this God experience where our lives are changed I think there's a couple factors probably going on there, but I, I think that it could be real. I have a couple questions, which I'll get to in a second, but, you know, I think that sometimes the way that religious services are set up, not sometimes they're set up in like hypnotic oh, yeah. ways where, oh, yeah. where they're like, I mean, they, they are geared towards opening your mind and messages kind of getting in, like making your brain more malleable. So they'll stick as if yeah. you were like a child you know um and so i think there could be that happening or a lot of influence it could be a moment of um you know just in the depths of despair and here's this like savior figure and that's everything that i've ever needed i think what i would question though is is your life actually the same or like the different um or are there remnants of that old thing but it's packaged a little bit prettier. Mm. What I mean by that is the family member that I talked about that said, you know, didn't didn't have another drop of alcohol, didn't, you know, like just left all of that debauchery behind and started following Christ. I do know, based off of family history and story, they were a dry drunk. They were very abusive to their family members, but it was under the scriptural laws, right? You know, husband the head of the household and children obey your parents. And right. And there was all these things that probably would have happened also if he had been drinking. But now we have this spiritual figure or spiritual authority to put over it. So it would be interesting to see like, okay, we have this diagnosed sociopath who then becomes a pastor, Well, a pastor is like an untouchable position. They're in a position of authority where others are looking up to them. And in some cases they can do no wrong. And so I go, well, isn't that just the perfect, that's like the perfect transition. Now I get to be a socially accepted sociopath and I've got God's favor. So nobody can question me. I can't think of a better role to be in as a sociopath. Like if I'm a sociopath, right? So I don't, I mean, I don't want to belittle people's experiences. I just have questions.
0: <laughs> of course, and I did too, and and it was interesting in the um, interview that I saw on this, and um, and afterwards I'll send you a link to it because you might be fascinated yeah, by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a friend of mine did this interview on this guy, and I'm not basing all my thinking on this on this one interview. It's just the latest data point in a years long look at this stuff of you know what is sociopathy and why do people act the way they do and what drives people to do such you know to be such egotistical Mm self-focused self-satisfying people who would, Mm -hmm. who just can't give a thought to another person in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So you understand that there's a genetic and a nurture aspect to that, or you can even beat somebody into that as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and there's genetic dispositions to that and you get that and you go, okay, I can kind of think with that, but then they have this moment in their life where they hit rock bottom or they have a, or they have what I'll call an epiphanal moment And I believe uh, personally, my initial total, total amateur hour theory here is that there is that the highs and the lows, I believe, can turn on some kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, hyperplasticity where yeah, the personality yeah. changes in such quick it happens so quickly yeah. and it's such a powerful change i don't know what mm-hmm. other word to use right um yeah not happening yeah there.
1: And, i mean i i would agree with that in the sense that uh so like there's many times i'll work with clients and i'll call them emotionally corrective moments mm. where like in an instant something happens that's maybe the opposite of what Ha- happened back then but right. what they needed yeah. right and all of a sudden everything changes yeah and i don't think it's magic i think it is neuroscience and yeah. how our brains and bodies are wired to work together and i don't think it happens all the time every single time you have an emotionally corrective moment it's this you know transformation but i do think that it does happen yeah. and so i would be it would be ignorant um of me to, or it just it would not be wise to say oh certainly that couldn't happen to a sociopath. It, it could, right? Like, who am I to deny that? Right. I'm not living inside their bodies. I just, yeah, have questions.
0: Absolutely. I do, too. And it was interesting in the interview, as you'll see, that he says later on in the interview, he goes, look, I still have all these thoughts. I still have all these mm-hmm. these desires to do bad things. And this was a guy who, who self admitted, he's the guy who had like 12 different incidents of road rage. He's the guy who would force you over to the side of the road and beat on your car if you didn't get out of it, you know, so you could like uh, confront this guy. Like this guy was a bad man and he owns it. But he's very interesting in the way that he talks about it that um, and being the way that he is, of course, you have to take everything he's saying with a grain of salt. So you're kind of like, okay, well, I'm following with this, but I'm only conditionally accepting everything you're telling me about yourself. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's just an interesting phenomenon, but it opens the door to the possibility that perhaps Mm -hmm. these emotional moments, these these uh, these epiphanal moments, Mm -hmm. are they reproducible? -hmm. Right. And if so, is that reproducibility a a possible future, even treatment modality? And this is, again, I'm way cart before the horsing right now. I know that this is totally suppositional on my part, but I'm always looking for inroads to understand and deal with this stuff, you know?
1: I mean, isn't that what religion does all the time, though? Right every Sunday morning in churches mm-hmm. across America or mm-hmm. Saturday nights or whenever you have your service. Like I think about, I mean, obviously this is not every church experience, but I think about even, okay, again, I'm in the Bible belt. There's, you know, it's a stone's throw in any direction. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the pastor Greg Locke. He's oh, gotten a lot of airtime.
0: time. Oh, I can, all too familiar. Unfortunately. Yeah, yes.
1: I can hear his services from my house. Like he is as the crow flies a mile away from my house.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought he was in Arizona. How interesting. Okay. I had his, yeah. I had him positioned all wrong in my head. How funny. Yeah. Cause I, unfortunately I've been exposed to a lot of that guy. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: And, and he's, he's not well loved here. I will say that because yeah. he's just, he's just so mischievous and so disrespectful and all these things, but I, I use him as an example because multiple times a month, he will have these over the top services of, you know, yelling and screaming and singing and book burning and like all of these things. Right. And then there's all these converts. Right. And so it's, it's these people that are at these pivotal moments where they do something, they change. And so when you're proposing the idea of, could we use this as a treatment option? I would say yes, because I mean, there's many people that are already doing that with the (laughs) guise of whatever their higher power is. And I think there's other treatment modalities that are along those same lines there's just maybe uh um, more guards put in place in terms of like research and ethics and you know do no harm yeah. but i mean i know that that some of the modalities you know i am actually trained in hypnotherapy i have a certification in that i'm certified in emdr i'm certified in somatic experiencing all of these modalities that are designed to have like shifts where i do X, Y, or Z. And literally my life can change, you know, in a matter of moments. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibilities. I personally would never want to foster a situation where like, that's going to happen on purpose, but there are some people that do when we think about psychedelics and, you know, other things like that. So, it's a big question
0: <laughs> no you're absolutely right I love it, 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 it that's that's yeah. great that's a great answer i couldn't agree with everything you just said more because there is a lot of trepidation and danger in this because you don't know what w- which direction the person's necessarily going to go this is so un unknown territory that i'm only throwing out possibilities mm-hmm. of like i'm a little excited about the possibilities but there are so many traps and pitfalls here and mm-hmm. and so many opportunities for abuse, because we are literally talking about sort of the, 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 I I hate this expression, the woof and warp, right? Like the, 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 the pieces of, of what Drives people's most intense life moments, and those moments mm-hmm. can be really good, or they can be really bad. And the last thing you want to do is yeah. be responsible for somebody's worst moment in their life, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I like, "Oh, yes, I realized yeah. I'm a scumbag from hell, and I need to go, you yeah. know, self harm now." It's like, no, 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 no. That wasn't right. that wasn't where we wanted <laughs> to go with this, right? So. Yeah, the safeguards and, the, and the, the ethics and all of that have to be very carefully taken into consideration yeah. with all of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I do think it's an interesting phenomenon, nevertheless, yeah. uh, that we see mm-hmm. in people. Okay, well, yeah. listen, all that being said, I've kind of gone a few minutes over our hour here and <laughs> okay. I, I really appreciate your time and thank you for, oh. for contributing with this. I want to throw this out again, guys. There's this book, it's called When Religion Hurts Us or Hurts You. Okay. It's Dr. Yeah. Laura Anderson. Where do they find this thing? How do they contact you if they want to, or find your work? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes. My book comes out October 17th everywhere. It's available for pre-order until then. So wherever you purchase your books, I got to live the local bookstores. So go ahead and request it there or at your local library. It will be out on, um, audiobooks as well. And so, um, so that's awesome. You can go to my website, uh, drlauraeanderson.com and there's links on there for, you know, to purchase it. And I think through my publisher, it's like 40 or 50% off, which is kind of nice. And I also, uh, like we said at the front of this episode, I am the director of the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. Um, which you can find us uh, at traumaresolutionandrecovery.com. And the reason I say that is because our main focus is working with individuals who are coming out of high control religions, groups, cults, fundamentalism, all the things that we're talking about here today. They all have their own stories, but they're all highly educated and trauma trained and trauma informed and all the things. And so one of the things I think we bring is that you don't ever have to convince us that it was that bad. We know it, right? <laughs> Which, and, and so many people, they struggle because they go, I'm having to educate my therapist. I'm having to convince my therapist. And so there's something when somebody will come and they'll be like, oh, this is what I experienced. And it's like, oh, you're not questioning me? Like you just like, yeah, that that can be really, really helpful. So we have practitioners, we are fully online so we can be accessed wherever you're at in the country or the world. Um, We run groups, couples, individual, all the things. And we can be found, like I said, our website is traumaresolutionrecovery.com. That's our Instagram handle as well. You can find me on uh, any social media platform at Dr. Laura E. Anderson.
0: There you go, guys. All the links in the description section below to everything she just said. Um, yeah. yeah, check it out. This is uh, this mm-hmm. is perfect. I suspect um, I suspect we might want to talk again.
1: I would love that. This has been such a good conversation. It's so fun.
0: (laughs) Good. I agree. I had a lot of fun talking with you about this. And now knowing uh, more about what your center does, I feel compelled to at least do another show about what you guys are doing with survivors of cults and high control groups and how you go about your your path of recovery on that—I'm—I'm I'm intensely curious about that, and I'm uh, curious to ask you about the uh, your opinions and takes on the role of education in all of this because that's my Ooh. big thing. So. <laughs>
1: I love it. Yes. okay, let's do it again.
0: Yeah, let's let's it do it again. Up. Okay, excellent. All right, folks, I really hope you all enjoyed this. Uh, I got something out of it where we covered a lot of territory mm-hmm. here. If you've been following my channel and uh, and what I've been talking about for a long time now, you know, you saw us talking here about emotional needs. Uh, This is all about what this is all about and understanding your emotional needs, understanding yourself is key to all of this and keeping yourself out of these red flag manipulative situations. So that all being said, thank you very much for coming around. I will see you guys next week. Bye bye.